Welcome to The Just Larson Show, where I interview innovators and leaders. Today on the show, I've got Josh Mata. Josh, thanks for doing this. Pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm going to read your bio and then have you uh, tell me about the high points that I missed. Is that okay? Sure, of course. Josh Mata is CEO and co-founder of Coalition, the world's first active insurance company designed to prevent digital risk before it strikes. Josh founded Coalition in 2017, and the company now serves over 130,000 customers and is valued at over $3.5 billion. An entrepreneur from the start, Josh joined Microsoft at age 15, becoming the company's youngest hire. He later played an influential role in founding a web infrastructure and website security company, Cloudflare, as its CXO and head of special projects. Josh earned his AB from the University of Chicago and currently lives in California with his wife and daughter. How'd we get? You, you, you got most of it, it, although it's like, it's funny how much we've grown since, uh, since I think we sent that over to you. Like the company's now worth $5 billion and we have over 160,000 customers, but who's counting, right? <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. Uh, I will say a couple of high points that I know that I feel like that missed is uh, your, your time uh, with the CIA and your time with Goldman Sachs. Yeah, yeah, yes. Um, it's, been, it's, been a couple, it's been a couple of years uh, between the two. Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm not sure how much I can say about the former, although, you know, I joined, uh, I was fortunate enough to join CIA out of, basically out of high school and worked there while I was a student at the University of Chicago. Uh, and of course, as one does, I left CIA and I joined an investment bank, uh, which of course the head of CIA at the time, George Tenet did as well when he left. Of course, he went to Allen and company and I went to, uh, to Goldman. So, um, it's funny, we, we've had some folks on here who've been on cyber teams, at the agency before, uh, actually mm-hmm. the guy who, who redesigned Norton and sold it to Intel is a former oh, wow. uh, agency guy. Uh, how do I put it? There's down? a number of Interested us floating in around. penetrating foreign governments. Yeah. You know, I, I definitely tell people that I'm much better at breaking into networks as opposed to defending them. Um, so this is perhaps a little bit why we decided to found an insurance company, but I'm sure we'll get to that. I have so many questions, but let's kind of go with yeah. that. Uh, where did you grow up and what did your parents do? Yeah. So I, I grew up in Olathe, Kansas, uh, just outside of Kansas City. Uh, my father worked for Sprint, uh, a large telecommunications company that's that's based in Kansas City, uh, and my my mother was a nurse uh, growing up in the uh, in the OB. So lots of lots of child delivery stories growing up. <laughs> oh, my mom was a nurse as well. Uh, what what was you? How would you describe your childhood? What was it like? You know, um, I, you know, maybe there's a part of me that would say boring. You know, I grew I grew, suppose I grew up in Kansas, so. I didn't have anything else better to do other than become an entrepreneur. And I suppose that helped me avoid the 7 a.m. paper route. Um, but, uh, but, you know, in, some, in many respects, like I, idyllic, like, you know, lots of friends lived in a wonderful, supportive place. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a great place to grow up. Cost of living, you know, I can now appreciate that a bit more than I did as a child. Uh, was, was a little bit better, certainly, than California. But, um, yeah, really, really enjoyed growing up in the Midwest. Are there, are there lessons or things from your earlier childhood that you think helped you excel in computers and, and, you know, getting on at Microsoft? I I think I heard you were accepted as an intern at 14 and, and just turned 15 when you went over. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. That's absolutely right. I mean, you know, certainly I think there's like a lot of Midwestern values in some respects that probably helped get me to where I was. I mean, you know, among them to some degree is humility. Like that was, I think, always a trait that was, uh, you know, uh, really valued uh, among my parents, you know, my peers, my family members, et cetera. 
And, you know, it literally forced sort of a level of curiosity, like sort of by definition, you know, anyone who thinks they already know everything, how can you possibly learn anything new? And, and so it was really sort of a value, I think, that stoked my curiosity and, and just desire to continuously try and Im improve and get better. And so, yeah, look, I, I taught myself how to program. Um, and I was aided by certainly some family members who are entrepreneurs themselves and had computer networking businesses and the like. So they sort of, you know, directed me in the right direction and then let me, let me loose. Um, I was fortunate to have some grandparents who are academics. And I, I think my favorite part of visiting them was going to the university bookstore where I could get the student discount on all the you know latest software packages and books and whatnot. And sort of, you know, one thing led to another. I started a company, uh, was ultimately recognized uh, by Microsoft. They wrote an article on the company, uh, which led to one of really the founding members of Microsoft, Jeff Rakes, reaching out and um, a conversation that ultimately led to, to working there uh, within Jeff's division. He was running Microsoft Business Division at the time, which encompassed Office and a number of other products. I was listening to I, maybe a CNBC or one of your other interviews where you talked about something uh, that's very similar. We just had um, the founder of Route on the show. I don't know if you know them. They basically do insurance for... So like people can do two-day delivery like Amazon, but insure... I don't know yep. if you, you met yeah, you know Evan yeah, over I'm, there. Yeah, I'm familiar. I don't know him well, no. But, but so, you know, similar to you of like rapid rapid growth into that billion dollar mark as a startup and but similar to you running computer businesses as a teenager having adults not realize he was a teenager can you talk about that experience <laughs> yes. yeah no 100 percent. i mean look i i worked out of you know all homes in kansas of course have basements uh because the the major natural peril there is uh is a tornado and so you know i was like the prototypical kid in the basement you know starting a company playing video games doing whatever else and, uh, and so, yeah, look, I had a, I, I finally convinced my parents to get a second phone line because I was jamming up the first one, you know, nearly 24 hours a day. This is of course, back before broadband internet, um, you know, had, had my own phone set up, had clients and yeah, none of them given the anonymity of the internet, like knew how old I was, um, really, you know, the only interaction I had to have through adults was my parents had to sign up for the merchant account to where I could accept credit cards because they weren't willing, the banks weren't willing to do business with a minor. Um, frankly, even M Microsoft, you know, at first struggled, like when they hired me, they weren't allowed to hire minors. And so technically I wasn't an employee of Microsoft. I was a contractor. Um, they had to contract for child labor, as I sometimes joke. But, uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, so look, the internet was very much a great equalizer and allowed me to run a company where the vast majority of my clients had no idea. P perhaps the, the, the funniest encounter was when one of my clients who was actually out in Laguna Beach, not far from where you once lived, uh, said, hey, I'm coming to Kansas City and would love to meet with you. And that's where we had to have sort of the awkward confession that, hey, we're, we're 14 years old. Is it okay if like my mom accompanies us? And sure enough, you know, he was totally fine with it. He loved it. So we met, you know, in the, the uh, lobby of an embassy suites and, you know, he really wanted Kansas City barbecue, which is the best in the country, I might add. And so we all went, my mom included, and, and got, went to Gates Barbecue. So, you know, f funny, funny stories building a company when you're a teenager. Okay. So a couple of random questions here, just from my own personal interest. Uh, I have only been to Jack Stacks, and I think it's the best barbecue I've ever had in my life. Uh, everybody seems pretty opinionated about the best barbecue <laughs> in, in uh, Kansas City. Do you, do you have one? Do you have a preference? So look, 
I mean, I'm definitely going to go with you on Jack Stacks and not just because they're one of our customers. So they purchase cyber insurance from Coalition, but it's phenomenal barbecue. They've actually sent the team here uh, a huge box of it. So they know how much of a fan I am. I, I also have to say I love Joe's and uh, Joe's is another great one. So Q39, like those three. I mean, I can't pick just one. Those are going to be the top three. <laughs> okay. I'm going to have to go back and try the other two. I, I was thoroughly impressed. And like, I knew it was going to be good, but it was, it exceeded yeah, expectations. <laughs> okay. Other super random question. As a kid, what, what was your uh, video game console of choice? Oh man. I, I, it, I mean, obviously it evolved over time. Uh, maybe that just reveals how long I played video games, but you know, Super Nintendo, uh, obviously like N64. So I was very much, I think, a Nintendo uh, fan, fanatic up until I had to make the Sony Xbox choice and, and I went Xbox. Uh, that's funny. I have Xboxes for my kids now, but I, uh, I, my friends all had Super NES. I'm like, I'm over there playing Street Fighter, you know, but my brother and yeah. I got into Genesis like early on, like maybe 92 or something like that and just yeah. built up the catalog, you know? And, uh, Genesis is great as well. Yeah. <laughs> although Golden, Golden Eye on Nintendo 64, those were the glory days. <laughs> right. Um, before we get to coalition, um, l let's do what's one, one of your favorite lessons from the agency, one of your favorite lessons from Goldman, one of your favorite lessons from Cloudflare. Yeah. I mean, look like across all of those, uh, companies really like looking back, it was like, it's how much purpose matters when building a company and, and how much the mission matters to be perfectly honest. Um, you know, the agency has to be one of the most mission focused employers on the planet. Uh, you know, the people, the men and women who, who serve their country and who go to work every day, you know, oftentimes they're not doing it for the largest salary or, or otherwise, you know, they're, they're doing it for a sense of purpose and, and to, to help others and to see out the mission, protect the United States. And that's powerful, right? I mean, I, I was able to work with some of the most talented people on the planet and, uh, and they were committed like to, to what they were doing. And, uh, you know, I don't think I've ever quite been in an environment like that since, although, you know, Goldman has to be, you know, very close. Like it's a very purpose mission driven, like team oriented company. So, uh, those are big things I, I'd say I probably took away from those two environments. You know, Cloudflare was always, it's of course like a combination of, you know, what, what to do, um, and what not to do, you know, sometimes the, the biggest lessons are like, oh, don't do that again. And, uh, you know, I'd say the things to do is there were, it was solve big problems. Like, you know, it takes as much time to see out a big vision as it does a narrow one. And, you know, the mission of Cloudflare from the beginning was to build a better internet, which seemed somewhat audacious at the time. But, you know, today, a staggering percentage of the world's internet traffic passes through a Cloudflare data center without most people realizing it. The internet is just objectively faster and safer as a result of it. And, uh, and, and so, that's something that I took with me um, as well. You know, solving cyber risk was the initial mission of Coalition, you know, a pretty audacious vision. You know, in terms of the, the lessons of what not to do, um, you know, there, there wasn't always like a clear defined culture, like there weren't clear values. And the company was growing so fast. We were adding employees so quickly uh, that, you know, occasionally we strayed. It made, it made the growth much more complex and difficult. And and so certainly that was something I learned in building coalition where the first document we ever wrote was actually a culture document, uh, you know, even before we wrote a business plan and while many companies don't have business plans anymore, right. It's like you do it on a napkin these days. I hear, you know, we had like a, an 80 page business plan since we were trying to convince very large reinsurers 
to give us capital. But the culture document came before that. So those are those are probably some of the most important lessons I learned. You know, I don't know as much about Cloudflare, except that obviously they're a huge name in space. Um, but yesterday on the show, we had a 16-year Goldman veteran. She's now in charge of $6 trillion of assets at BlackRock. And wow. she talked about what an asset it was that time that she'd spent at Goldman those years and, and yeah. you know, people who were there to excel, right? Oh, and then yeah. tomorrow we're having... Uh, uh, Doug Landonot, who, uh, 34 year case officer, former chief of station for the agency recently came out with a book called the recruiter. And, uh, I, I, uh, I'm down to like the end of the last chapter right now on my morning drive. And it's like very much like a, exactly what you're talking about for the mission, not the paycheck and, uh, yeah. and strong personalities and yet they figure out how to work together and, and try to make people safe and, uh, hundred percent, you know. Both of them talk about coming from imperfect organizations who've made mistakes and yet are able to stay on mission, learn from mistakes, ideally, and and do better going forward. Yeah. Well, it just creates such a huge amount of focus as well. It's like when you can focus the amount of talent that a CIA has or that a Goldman has, focus that on, on like a very precise mission. It's incredible what a, what a group of people can achieve. When did you found Coalition? So it was founded in April of 2017. So, so here we are in, in August 22. Uh, right. Five billion in five years is, is pretty impressive, my friend. What, what are some of the things you attribute that to? I mean, in many respects, it's, uh, it definitely it's a lot to, to happen in five years. And I, I guess I should reflect and pinch myself that uh, certainly when we founded the company, this is not where we thought we would be in five years. But, you know, in terms of looking back in hindsight, uh, you know, why are we here? I mean, at some level, it's a combination of the things I mentioned. It's it's picking a big problem, you know, that organizations have. Like every business is digitizing, even even non businesses, not for profits, are digitizing. Places of worship, it's like hard to think of a single for profit, not for profit, or or even church or synagogue that isn't dependent on a working computer and internet connection. And uh, and of course, when those things fail, it's either very painful or even existential. Um, and it can even be existential to human life if you think about technology used in the healthcare industry or industrial control systems. And so big, big problem that we wanted to set out and solve, very complex for most businesses other than the largest to solve it. Um, you know, it's very expensive, uh, not just it's even learn about the problem and understand it, much less to actually go out and, you know, purchase all the cybersecurity you need and implement it in the people you need to hire, et cetera. And, uh, and then it, it was combined that the vision with the problem with, with purpose, you know, a lot of the people who are at coalition came out of the financial services world came out of the intelligence community, et cetera, came out of the insurance uh, world, of course. And, you know, let's all band together and find it a new way to solve this problem. Uh, and it, it turns out that we've somehow, we've scratched that itch, so to speak, like it has resonated with people. Uh, and, you know, we now have 160,000 organizations that have made the decision to, you know, part with certainly their, their hard-earned income uh, to, for our services. And so, you know, we're, we're pleased to be able to be there creating literally a coalition of organizations that we're, uh, that we're working with to protect them from the cyber risks that they face. We've been doing a mini series with a, a number of folks involved in the Gordian Knot Center at Stanford. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if you've heard about these guys, but they recently stood up C blank and some people, and it's, it's really this idea of like, how can we attract more of the smartest minds um, 
to to help with the exact kind of issues you're talking about. I mean, theirs is is more specifically focused on national security issues, being more so than some right. of the criminal elements. Except that so many of the criminal elements have national security implications now. And yes. I mean, there's just such a chance for asymmetric warfare, like such a, you know, such a small group with relatively low funding that don't own a Navy or an Air Force have the ability yes. to have such an outsized impact in a negative way to people's everyday happiness. And, and like you said, in a medical situation, their actual lives, right? Oh, 100%. And, and vice versa. I mean, like most business owners don't worry day to day about protecting the land, sea and air around them, right? You know, they have local law enforcement or the Navy or the Air Force, like you said. But there's now this fourth domain of, of activity, which is the cyber domain. And the government, local, state, federal, has basically said you're on your own, right? Like, you know, normally if you're the victim of a crime, you can call the police, um, you know, or you can call the fire department or whatnot. I kind of imagine the police showing up uh, after you report a cybercrime as being, you know, a, an outtake from that Zoolander film. You know, they put a couple bullets through your MacBook or your your PC and it's like the criminals are inside the computer, you know, uh, it's it just doesn't work like that. And so that's um that's really the need that we're fulfilling, right? It's it's helping businesses understand the risk that they're take, taking. So let's just let's talk about your ideal client because I have actually been really nervous about this. We um our commercial real estate fund we're doing like really high profit margin things like uh in the Airbnb space like really purpose built mini resorts for action sports families that are they're they're uncommon, they're cool and so there's a high profit margin in, right? And so you can imagine my investors call their friends and they're like, hey, this is awesome. We get, it, we get this check every quarter, right? And uh, I have obviously to comply with all the securities laws about who I can sell my investment to. But then I have the problem of like, what if we get hacked? Like there's, a, you know, like the Warren Buffett thing, it takes 20 years to build a reputation and one decision to lose it, right? Like, you know, some of these large family offices and, and people that we dealt with, with exceedingly high net worth, um, our reputation of like, oh, we lost your money because we didn't, we didn't have cyber defense or things like this. Like, I really don't ever want to make that phone call. Like, it's really kept me up a lot. Um, somebody like us, what, do you have products that address us? Or are we too small? Or who's, who's your market? No, look, I, I mean... There are almost no types of businesses that we do not serve. Like we give insurance to uh, not-for-profits, to art galleries, museums, to churches, uh, synagogues, like I mentioned, uh, you know, small businesses of all sorts, startups. We insure professional sports teams. Uh, I mentioned we insure a barbecue joint in Kansas City. Um, you know, we insure publicly traded companies. And uh, we have a program of cyber insurance for bouncy castle operators. So these are people who just operate bouncy castles as a business. They purchase insurance from us. And the reason for it is that everyone has this risk, right? Um, you know, obviously there's the, all the hacker wearing hoodie types of risks, you know, ransomware and data breaches and the like. But cyber insurance also broadly covers privacy liability. Well, name a business that isn't collecting personally identifiable information or payment card data or health information or the like, you know, if that's, if that's lost for any reason, even if accidental, that's covered under a cyber insurance policy as an example. Um, if your technology just fails, right? Like the, you know, you mentioned your fiber going down today, you're in a new, you're in a new location. 
you know, if you have a, a business interruption loss, that's actually covered by cyber insurance, even though there's no criminals involved. And so cyber insurance is kind of broadly designed to cover the sorts of losses that an organization would have as they start to bring technology inside. And again, like it's hard to think of a single organization that isn't somehow using technology in a way in which if it didn't work, wouldn't cause them some sort of hardship. So that's what we're here to, to, to ensure. So, um, so we can sell you a policy excuse, right yeah. here live, Jess. I mean, like, let's okay. just do a lot. Well, actually, this is, my, this is my thing. <laughs> you know, excuse my ignorance. Is this similar to like when you go get general liability insurance for when, you know, somebody breaks their leg on our bike, jumps on our property? Like, do we, we go in, then there's a quote that comes back or what's the process like? Yeah, it's similar, right? So it's like most small businesses today um, buy a, what's called a bot policy, like a business owner's policy. Uh, or if you're a bit larger, you buy some sort of packaged insurance, which both of those are packaging together liability insurance with property insurance, right? And so they protect the things you own and they, you know, protect this from stuff happening at your place of business and, what, you know, all the liability you have. The thing is, is like bot policies were, I think, created somewhere in like the 1980s for the risks that businesses had in the 1980s. Well, it turns out that businesses in 2022 look a lot different than they did back then. Uh, and I'd venture to say that cyber risk is now becoming a far more dominant risk than uh, the property stuff. Most organizations don't even own much property and, and yet they haven't really evolved. And so that's what's happening. Businesses are now either adding cyber insurance coverage to their bot policy, although the coverage there is, is still pretty weak, it's lagging, or they go out and they purchase a standalone policy that's just dedicated to cover those types of risks. And oftentimes it's purchased through an insurance broker, right? Most businesses are using a broker. Um, you know, occasionally you could, you could buy online through some sort of online platform. Like for example, our products are available through Intuit QuickBooks as an example. Um, so they're a partner of ours and we have a number of others as well in, in which, uh, whether through brokers or through these channel partners like Intuit, you can, you can very easily and quickly in under 60 seconds, purchase a cyber insurance policy. And, uh, will you tell people about your free offering that we spoke about just for a second? Yeah. Yeah. Look, so like the mission of, of our company was to solve cyber risk. And, you know, a big part of that was like, how do we you know, democratize access to it, which is just sort of a fancy way of make it as close to free as, as humanly reasonably possible. And so uh, I was said the good fortune to be invited to the White House uh, to meet with the president and a number of other leaders to talk about cybersecurity back in August of last year. And uh, at, that su at that meeting, uh, that, that summit, we announced that we were going to make our cyber risk platform that had, pre or that had only been available to our insurance customers available to anyone. Uh, today, over 80,000 people are using that platform for free, like no cost. And again, it's not entirely free because you got to spend your time to use it. You got to spend your time to understand the problem. But we're trying to do as much as possible to make it easier for businesses of all sorts to protect themselves. So that's, that product is called Coalition Control. Anyone can sign up with just a business email address at control.coalitioninc.com. Uh, and so, yeah, it's a, look, it's a great tool. It's the same tool uh, that we provide to our insurance customers. And it's, it's helped uh, quite a few organizations avoid sort of obvious losses. If, if I could shift gears here, thinking more about the idea of growing a business. Um, when you think about growing a business to a $5 billion valuation in five years, there's so many other folks specifically in the insurance and, and taking the efficiencies of the internet, things like this. They would love to achieve something like that and aren't. 
What do you attribute your success to? Like, what have you done that others haven't? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, it's it's easy to try and distill the five billion dollars into a sort of a five year success story, but uh, I've I've definitely been going at this and learning how to build companies and and for a, a considerably longer period of time, probably measured more in decades than years. And you know, like everyone, I've have had successes, have had failures, and you know, I think it goes back to just like you know having humility, like really trying to learn from those successes, learn, trying to equally learn, if not more from the failures and distilling that into, uh, you know, building coalition. And as I think many repeat entrepreneurs will tell you or repeat folks who've seen the high growth startup, it's a lot easier the second time. Um, it's even easier the third time. And, and so I think, you know, look, a good part of the success is, is owing to that and, and want to be open, you know, had this been my first company, uh, I'm not as confident that this, uh, that maybe it would have grown quite as quickly as it did. It also just look. I think of like building a company as as being having having fewer ingredients than baking a cake, right? And not that I'm a master baker, but it's like what water, flour, eggs, I guess sugar. If you want it to taste decent, you know, in a company, it's like three ingredients. It's it's a good idea or ideas, and you know you have to continuously come up with them and, and innovate. Um, it's capital, and it's people. And uh, people, by my imagination, over all of my years of experience, are by far the hardest part of that equation. Uh, and there's two parts of it. There's attracting talented people. And my philosophy there is pretty simple. It's stars attract stars. Like talented people attract other talented people. Purpose-driven people attract other purpose-driven people. So like really focus hard on uh, the, the, the folks that you're going to go build your organization with, the values they embody, because they're going to attract people that look a lot like them. And, and that compounds, right? It's not just the financial aspects in a business that compound, it's the talent and it's the, the people that you have. Of course, once you have a bunch of talented people, it's, you know, how do you get them to work together collaboratively towards a common end? And, you know, we've talked a lot about how, the importance of that during this podcast. And, and that's really where culture comes in, right? It's, um, you know, and, and I think you have to be deliberate. You have to write it down. But of course, that's not sufficient. You know, it's culture is not what you write down. It's what you practice. But really having a strong culture is what can get a group of amazingly talented people to work together collaboratively. For you, what does intentionally practice it, practicing it look like? Like, how do you get enough meaningful repetitions to build habits? Like, what, what does that actually look like for you guys? I'm guessing it's not just posters on a wall somewhere. It's not just posters on a wall. Um, no, I mean, a lot of it's been building them into like fun moments in the company where we recognize people. So, you know, we had, we had a whole mantra of like sweeping the floors. Like no one's too big to do the small tasks that need to be done. Uh, and that's especially important in a startup where, you know, whether you're like doing the dishes and turning them on so you don't have fruit flies flying around your office or, you know, working on the higher value ad stuff, it's like everyone's got to chip in. And so we, we had a, you know, at, at our weekly team meeting, we had this thing called the Golden Dustpan Award, where someone who just went above and beyond, you know, like they got it. And then they got to recognize the next person. And it just blossomed into this like corporate wide talent contest where people got increasingly clever in terms of how they handed off the award. There was like videos, there was raps, there was haikus. Um, it just got increasingly <laughs> clever. The dustpan went from like just literally a Rubbermaid dustpan to someone had like a glittery gold coalition embossed logo. I mean, it got, you know, very, uh, and it was, it became quite the honor. So that was one way. Um, you know, the other and, and was, was that like at a weekly meeting or a monthly meeting that that got passed on or how did, what did that look like? It was at a weekly meeting. Now it's at a, at a biweekly meeting. Uh, and it's to this very day, like there has not been a single team-wide meeting where we have not ended with that award. And, 
you know, it's just a way to recognize someone. It's a way to like instill that particular culture, cultural value and, and remind people about, about the others. Uh, you know, we also instituted, we had an orientation um, and we've done orientation even all the way down to when we were like 14 employees. Uh, any new employee that came in, we'd have a group of people take them through it, even if there was only one person joining us. Uh, I still do that orientation to this very day. There's not a single person who's, who's joined the company that hasn't gone through mine. And I spend a lot of time talking about why we built the company. How big is the team now? I think we're like almost 700, 700. And so for you, there's so many demands on your time. What is yeah. it about that that you came to the conclusion, nope, this is something that, that I want to do personally? Look, there's no better moment than when someone's joining the company to, to really make an impact on them and to like really, you know, make sure that the course uh, that they're on is, is the right one. You know, they're, they're excited about joining. Uh, you know, they're ready to go. Like they have a fresh set of eyes so they can see things that perhaps some of us can't. And so it's a really an opportunity for me to like really instill that culture, uh, open the door to where if you see something that we can, that isn't working as it should be, don't assume that we just wanted to do something in a suboptimal way for the fun of it. You know, to let us know, you know, tell me like, you know, I'm accessible to everyone in the company. I, I report to everyone. It's kind of the way I see my job as the CEO. And so that, that's, that's why I think it's so incredibly important to do that. So yeah, building culture is like a, a big part of my job. Talent is a big part of my job. And I remember in the early days of Coalition, I had an investor ask me what percentage of my time I spent team building, like recruiting. And I said, probably half of it. And he told me that was low. He's like, I would have expected you to have spent 80% of your time doing that. And you know what? He was right. Like he was absolutely right. So there's a lot of people who will be shocked to hear that number. Why do you feel that number is right? Well, I think it goes back to those three ingredients, right? It's like people. People, people is like the most important aspect of, of building a successful and enduring company. And you have to get it right. And especially uh, in the early days, you know, you don't have like a lot of room to make errors. Like, you know, 700 people, you can make a mistake and you'll likely survive it. Maybe it'll be painful depending on how critical that role is, et cetera. But, you know, when you're, seven people in a room, you're 14 people in a room, you know, building a company, you know, even one mishire can be really difficult and sidetrack you for a long time. And it's, it's difficult to take action on those things as well. So that, I think that's why that in investor mentioned it. It's like nothing, no great idea, no great company comes from one single individual. Uh, it comes from a, a high functioning team. And so spend your time building one is I think the message that I, that I received loud and clear. I got to tell you, this came up in my interview yesterday with Samara Cohen from, from BlackRock, right? Uh, I think when I started in investing, kind of like 2004-ish, I thought of people a little more like replaceable parts in the equation. And uh, like as time goes on, I just continually get converted further and further to everything you're saying of like this idea of like, you know, the example I used with her yesterday is like, the most elite classified units of the special ops teams, you know, uh, those guys, it's, it's not about the equipment. You know what I mean? My yeah. example to her was like, you could throw them out of a plane. They, they lose all their equipment except the big pen and they're still going to accomplish their mission, you know? Yeah. And, and her, she completely agrees with you, by the way. And, and that's how she sees her ability to run $6 trillion in assets under management. Okay. And. Her line was this, because she had done uh, a lot of theater and theater production before getting into finance. 
And she said, 95% of good directing, 95% of being a good director is good casting. Yeah. I thought it was a great analogy. I believe it. Yeah. Well, look, and to be fair to you, I think there was once upon a time in like corporate America where maybe people were more expendable parts, right? And, you know, the predominant organizational design at that time was like a very large hierarchical organization. You have these companies with, you know, 30, 40,000 employees, the people at the bottom, like literally you, you did not want them to think because it would just be chaos. Like they, they, it had to be, you know, more robotic, but then the internet came along the 24 seven news cycle, you know, the speed and pace of things just increased dramatically the data and information available to people to, to compete. You know, you had to move a lot faster and it turned out that that hierarchical structure was very fragile. And as a result, like there's a lot of companies that during my childhood, I thought would always exist. Like they don't exist anymore, right? Um, they're gone by the wayside. And so, you know, certainly the new way to build a company is, is, is a flat, is to keep it as flat as you possibly can. You know, it's to actually encourage all of your employees to think and make sure that they have the framework and the data to be able to do that well. We talk a lot in coalition about pushing information to the edge of the company, where I want everyone at the edge of every part of our business to know exactly what's going on, to be able to measure how well they're doing things so that they can adopt and, and adjust and make decisions, you know, faster and more autonomously than waiting for, you know, someone many rungs removed who can't see the problem uh, to all of a sudden realize that something in the financial statements doesn't look right. And so let's make some crazy course correction. Um, that's, that's where I think, you know, people now are like a far more critical aspect in, in, in empowering them, right? That's equally important. So let's talk about clients for a minute. When you think about attracting new clients, what's your mindset when it comes to the mix of, of marketing versus sales versus just influencing in general? What's, what's kind of your philosophy for new client acquisition? Yeah, I mean, look, we're like a super product-focused organization. And by that, I mean, um, it's like, look, insurance sucks. Like, let's be blunt about it. Um, you know, ho hopefully the audience here is... Uh, of a, of a certain age, I'll, I'll keep it PG 13, but it's, it's awful, right? You buy an insurance policy, you stick it on a shelf, it collects dust and you hope to never use it again. Many people never do. They never get any value from it. Um, but of course you can get immense value if something bad happens. You know, we wanted to improve that. And that was a big part of this push for active insurance. You know, yes, of course we're going to, you can transfer your risk. And when something bad happens, we'll pay the claim just like a traditional insurance policy but we do so much more. Like we'll actually help you prevent the loss from happening in the first place, which let's be honest, no one wants to file a claim. They'd much rather avoid the loss if they could. So we help them do that. And then in the instance that they do have a loss and they have no one to turn to, literally no one, not the police, not the fire department, you know, we're the, we are the bat phone. Like they can call us, uh, you know, we will help them. We will help them recover operationally, which is what they want far more than, than the check at the end of the day. And so you know, if you can just build a great product that people can understand and that helps them, it's like nine tenths the battle, you know, then yes, of course, once you've got that, the hard problem is you have to educate people. Like it's an education problem. You know, a lot of people, maybe you like weren't aware that this product even existed before we spoke or that there was anything different than just this awful traditional insurance product. And that's where it's a combination of marketing, uh, of course, to go out and tell that message uh, and sales, right? Which is, our model is very much driven through a channel, um, insurance brokers. And so we want to go educate those brokers so then they can then go and educate their clients. Um, sort of the whole concept of teaching someone to fish. 
um, you know, that's what we're doing by both that sales strategy and then increasingly a marketing strategy to help really create a new category of insurance is, is maybe the way I would put it in the same way that, you know, the smartwatch is a different category than the watch watch, right? It's like an Apple iWatch will tell you the time and the date, but it'll, it'll check your blood oxygen level. It'll notify the emergency services. If you have a hard fall, it has this incredible amount of computational power attached to it. And that's the same thing with our policy. It's an insurance policy with an incredible form of computational power that does things you would never have expected a watch or much less an insurance company to do, depending on which analogy I'm picking. So um, can you give me an example? Can you tell me about a story of how you're educating your channel partners and, and kind of winning that mind share from these brokers or maybe some other insurance companies are, are not? Yeah. Yeah. Like I'll give you a, a great example. I mean, so we have insurance brokers that place their customers' business with us. Um, we had one that was actually just across the Bay Bridge here from where I'm at in Oakland. It was a law firm. Uh, and someone in that law firm opened an email and clicked on an attachment that they shouldn't have. Um, and of course, we all know how that story ends. Like they download malware under their computer. It gives remote, remote access to a Russian organized criminal group. And it's sort of a matter of time before that turns into a very devastating ransomware loss. Well, we collect so much information. We're tracking the activities of these threat groups that we detected the infection. Um, we detected that there had been a malware detonation inside our policyholders network. And we sent them an alert within 15 minutes of that. Within an hour, we had worked with their director of information technology to pull that infected machine out of their network, to clean it up, um, to solve the issue, you know, add multi-factor authentication and the like on the box and, you know, turned a, a breach, like what was actually a breach, you know, we contained it into something very small uh, and avoided a very large ransomware loss. The broker, by the way, was copied into all of those communications. Imagine if you're an insurance broker, you know, or the policyholder, and it's your insurance company that reaches out to tell you that someone is, has, you know, has downloaded malware. In fact, the director of IT, after all the dust settled, he sends us a one-line email that says, I forgot to ask, how did you find this out? And it's, it's just like, you know, the kind of the mind-blowing moment where your insurance company is providing that level of protection. Now, when you do that repeatedly... <laughs> And a broker sees that. And of course, a broker sees that all the traditional incumbent insurance companies they're working with don't do anything remotely like that. Like they're converted. Not only do they place it for all their clients, they buy it themselves. And so we insure a staggering number of the insurance agencies and brokers that, that actually sell our product. Um, you know, they become literally our best, our best customers, our best clients, and, and they can go out to their clients and attest that they use the product as well. So it's kind of just, again, solve a problem, uh, do it well. And then over the course of time, you know, people will take notice you're doing something dramatically different and the rest just sorts itself out. Can I distill it down my way and then you correct Please. me? Yeah, of course. As you're talking, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of Seth Godin, the marketing writer. You probably know books like Tribes. I've heard stuff. of Seth, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. And my favorite speech he ever gave was the Nordic Business Forum in, I think he was in Sweden or Norway, I can't remember where. And he talks about this idea that like basically marketers abused the audiences and crammed ads down their throats for so long that um, as soon as customers had a choice, they chose to opt out. You know, look at pop-up lockers, look at all the things yep. 
you know, I, I pay for YouTube premium, so I don't have to sit through all those ads, you know, right? Like we're, and, and essentially, um, what he's saying is that, that like it, in his opinion, um, the best kind of marketing you can do is have a better product. And he says that the, the marketing becomes a product. And what I'm hearing from you is like a real embracing of that. I've like over, over index on, on attracting the kind of people that could create the kind of product that creates its own category. So we're hard to compete with because we're, you know, we're kind of like category king by default because we invented the category. And, and, and then if it actually is what we claim it is, that results in great stories that we then share about, about this, the product. And it's not, it's not a bunch of puffery. It's not a bunch of fluff. It's like stories about what we, what, what we did that is on another level. How would you say it better I, than I that? I, look, I don't know that I could say it better than that. I mean, you know, and like, I think Cloudflare, by the way, took a very similar approach. Like in both companies, we didn't have a single marketing person for years. Like Coalition didn't even have a marketing function like three years into the journey. Um, and, you know, look, that was a badge of honor uh, up, up until the point where it's a badge of shame, where it's like just so many more people need to hear about this story. And, and so once we did start building a marketing organization, it was really focused, on, to your point, more on far more on product marketing. Uh, you know, our CMO is a world-class product marketer. Most of those came out of Salesforce, you know, where Benioff, of course, is the master of masters. And, uh, you know, that's where it came down to like, how do we articulate this vision of the future that, hey, this isn't traditional insurance. This is a new category of insurance. Uh, you know, it, it makes it a lot easier for people to understand the value add of your product and, and, and really, you know, really latch onto it. And it just reinforces itself. So you said it perfectly. I've, I've just now added two minutes to say that, to say that uh, even further. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, okay. Can I switch gears again? Yeah, of course. So um, I was at a lunch yesterday with the police department and mm -hmm. that is going to be taking our new training and child rescue. So we, we've got a former intelligence officer who has mm -hmm. agreed to teach an unclassified course on how to help cops recruit high level sources in criminal networks that are trafficking children. Okay. So it's not like a one and done bus. This is like, how do we recruit an agent in place that can turn into bus for years? You know, somebody so high up, they know where all the money goes and comes from and goes to. Right. Kind of, right. And they're, they're really excited to get that level of human intelligence training because they just, most, most PDs just don't get that level of training. Right. Right. And, right. um, we're actually our, right now we're, we're actually fundraising. We're actually going to be giving departments 10 grand so they can actually afford to pay for a source like this. Right. You know, that's very welcomed. Right. Yeah. From there. But what it quickly turned into was talking about their lack of cyber skills and how he just got a grant finally, cause they realized how far behind they are and these kind of things. He got a grant. They're trying to get some trainings and some equipment, some of this stuff. And I started talking to them about the idea of social engineering. And, right. you know, it's like oftentimes, this is my opinion, feel free to disagree with me, but like oftentimes the, the quickest way to hack a system is to hack the human. Like, of course, you know, yeah. you don't, you don't need to have an advanced computer degree from MIT. If you can just get the secretary to, to uh, turn her head away while you use your iPhone and take a picture of the password she wrote on a post-it note that stuck to her computer screen. <laughs> right. 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 Or, or learn enough acronyms and lingo to sound like an insider and, and call up and pretend to be the IT guy. Right. Mm -hmm. um, You're absolutely right. 
So th that's my like very limited explanation of, of social engineering. How would you describe it better for people who haven't thought about training their staff and, and being aware of, you know, criminal organization trying to hack the human instead of hack the ones and zeros? Yeah. I mean, look, and it's, I would say it's almost always hacking the human. Um, that's typically where this starts. And so if, you know, if you look at the three most common claims that we have, they're business email compromise claims where someone's typically been tricked or socially engineered into giving their password to whatever account has been compromised. It's social, social engineering, or we call funds transfer fraud, where someone's been sent an email or someone's email has been hacked and that hacked email is used to defraud someone else. Uh, or, you know, there's a fake invoice or a phone call even, right, to convince someone. Uh, there's even SMS messages, right? Who in this day and age hasn't gotten an SMS purportedly from their boss asking them to go buy some gift cards? And, uh, you know, people will do that. People will go buy gift cards. And the second they give those numbers, like the money's gone. Um, so it's, it's high. The third is ransomware, right? And ransomware oftentimes, again, stems from some sort of human error uh, in, in many cases. But social engineering is, is the dominant thing. Like, look, criminals are lazy. Uh, they're not going to expend enormous resources to hack someone if they don't have to. And the same goes for nation states, right? Like, I've spoken to many a CEO of a Fortune 500 business and even this, the CISOs. And it's like, look, you have to focus on things like email. You have to focus on the basics. And it's like, oh, it's just email, this phishing, all this. And it's like sophisticated actors don't use sophisticated tools if they don't have to. You know, I, I would phrase your statement. I, the example I give is if I can give your employee a $20 Starbucks gift card and they'll give me their password in exchange, like why do we need to use some zero-day exploit that we've spent millions of dollars acquiring or developing? Um, and so you're, you're spot on. Um, social engineering... One of the biggest threats our customers face, uh, criminals are smart and they target particular industries, especially hard. So look, anyone involved in real estate like you are, target of choice for these criminals because big dollar transactions, multiple parties involved. And so if you can manage to get access to that title agent's email or the realtor's email, all of a sudden you can do some pretty egregious damage, right? You can tell people, hey, this is where to wire your money. Uh, and I can't tell you how many times I've seen a homeowner wire their life savings to, to a bank account that was not the, the one that they should have. And so these things can absolutely be devastating for businesses. Same goes for invoices, and it even hits big companies. I mean, Facebook famously paid over $100 million uh, to a criminal who had faked an invoice from Quanta Computer Corporation. Now, I think they managed to recover quite a bit of it, but um, I mean, it's uh, what an incredible loss, right? Yeah, no kidding. Listen, this has been great. Thanks for spending so much time here today. What, of course. What yeah. did we not cover? What do you want to leave with? Look, we covered a lot of ground. I, I, you know, I think for me, it's just, it's, it's that educational thing of making sure that anyone who's listening, it's like every organization, and we see this every day, right? Through claims, uh, cyber risks are growing. Um, and, you know, many businesses are self-insuring. Like everyone has cyber insurance is kind of one of the comments I make. You either buy it from a third party or you're insuring yourself. Um, just recognize that, right? Because uh, it's on your balance sheet at this point. And, you know, that's where it's like, you know, you can work with any company, not just ours, to help with that and make the right decision. But, uh, you know, we see this impacting not-for-profits, small businesses, large organizations. Uh, you know, it's, it's a topic that I think in, it's in every boardroom. 
So I just sort of leave it with that. Like this is a risk management problem, not just a technology problem. You can't just, you know, add MFA. You can't, you know, these are all things that help. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, they only mitigate risk. They don't eliminate it. Um, so, yeah. But otherwise, this book, it's been great just to be on the, on the program and uh, incredible, the groups of people you interview. So I'm humbled to be in their company. Thanks again for doing this. Yeah. Take care.